Welcome to Faith Bridge Sermons Podcast. Today's sermon features Bible teacher Steve Carter, and it was recorded on Sunday, March 13th. Thanks for tuning in. We'd love the chance to connect with you, so drop us a line at podcast at faithbridge.org. And if you're in the area, join us this Sunday on campus at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. and come say hi. And you can always join us for FaithBridge online at faithbridge.org slash live. Here's Steve. Well, good morning, FaithBridge. How's everyone doing? It's so good to be back here with you all. We've got Texas A&M doing well in basketball. You, whoever thought y'all were a, a basketball school? destroying Auburn, which I absolutely love. Um, Hey, before we jump in, we are in a series on the life of Jesus. We're in this Lenten time where we just kind of prepare our hearts to literally receive when it comes to Easter. And there's just been some practices that many of you have been participating in. Um, And I'm excited because we have been doing this march through the book of Luke. And we're going to go to a passage that I think oftentimes many of us don't kind of spend time in, this parable that we're going to look at. We don't really, really know. But before we dive into that, I just thought maybe we should build a little context. So if you do this, would you stand to your feet? And I'm going to have you uh, recite a little Hebrew with me, all right? You're going to stand to your feet, all right? And you're going to put your pinky in the air, okay? Wave it around like you just don't care. All right, so here, here it is. The, 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 Hebrew, the Hebrew people, back, they believed that God had more power in his pinky than like any of us have in our whole being. And so whenever they would say the name God or Yahweh, which they never really did, they'd always like put their hand over their head because there was such reverence for the name Yahweh. And, and, and then when they would recite a passage that was so central, central, to what it meant to be a Jewish believer, they they would raise this pinky in like the respect that God has so much power. So Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your being. And literally the word like being in Hebrew is the word mahore. It literally means muchness. Some of you, your arms are getting tired. You had an extra hour of sleep. Some of you 9 a.m.ers were like, slept in an extra hour. I know you lost an hour, but you slept in an hour. Your arms kind of just fallen. But I, but I want you to understand this. Like, the idea was that we were to love God with every atom and every molecule, every ounce of our being. And that word mahode literally meant muchness, like muchness, every ounce of us. But the beginning of that passage, Hero Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. All right, so say with me, Shema Rael. Adonai Elhinu. Adonai Echad. Yeah, put a little into it. All right, you can have a seat, all right? So this is, this is good. Now, now we got to understand, like, we kind of say, we're like, like, for a Hebrew, for a rabbi, for a Talmudim, a disciple, they said it with some chutzpah, and some passion, some belief. Because this is like, hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one, and we shall love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all of our muchness, with everything within us. That is the goal. And then right underneath that, you skip down a few passages, and you will see that the scriptures then say, your understanding, your passion, your devotion, your desire to walk in the step of Yahweh, you are then to impress that onto your kids. 
You're to teach them, literally press these commandments into their being, into their mind, shaping and forming them so that they too can walk with chutzpah and passion, giving honor and glory to God. And the ways that they would do this was through some rabbinic teachings. And so at the age of six, if you were a, a child, a boy or a girl in a Jewish home, you'd go to the local synagogue, the local church, and, and there would be a local rabbi, a local teacher, and they would begin to teach you. And if you were pretty good and you went from like six to 10 in one class, you'd go from 10 to 14 to the next class. And, and if you were like really, really elite, then you would be invited by a rabbi who was different. A rabbi who had authority, the kind of authority that, that didn't just teach the kind of central doctrine that other rabbis would teach in the local Torah schools and synagogue schools, but this rabbi could offer up new interpretations. He would say something like, if you, you've heard it said, but I'm going to tell you a new interpretation. And, and before Jesus and after Jesus, there were these rabbis who had authority and they ended up having schools where they would teach their theology, their yoke, their interpretations, and you'd have disciples of disciples of Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Gamaliel or Rabbi Shammai. And they would have all of these schools that were built on their theology. And we have this here in the, in the States. Uh, we have theologies built around men's and, and people's like perspective, whether it's Salvation Army and the Booth family or, or John Wesley or John Calvin. We can, we can go Judson. We can go a whole bunch of Fuller. You just name most seminaries in the U.S. They were named after people and their interpretations. So what's amazing, though, is the question that began to be asked again and again of this rabbi named Jesus was, where did he get his authority from? Like, who is this man? He, I mean, he can heal. Who is this man that can offer up new interpretation? Who is this man and where did he get his authority? So with that, we're going to dive into Luke chapter 20. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. One of our ushers would love to give you them. And Luke 20 is a powerful passage and we're going to just walk through it verse by verse. And then, and just raise your hand if you need a Bible. Um, and, and then we're going to celebrate and receive communion together. Luke 20 begins like this. Verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law together with the elders came up to him. Tell us, by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I love this, because Jesus just hears the question and goes, all right, I'll raise you. I'm going to ask another question. I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. And then Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. <laughs> You're not going to play? Neither will I. Now this question really is a powerful one. Where did you get this authority? 
Now, in Hebrew, the word authority is the word shmiha. Let me hear you say shmiha. I promise you I don't make these words up and come here and pretend. It's a real word. But the idea of shmiha was this, this kind of commissioning of sorts. So you'd have these rabbis at the local Torah teachers, and they, they, they taught somebody else's yoke or set of teachings. But these other traveling rabbis, these ones with shmiha, who offered up new interpretations, to get shmiha, you needed two rabbis with shmiha to basically bless that you had it. You had it. You had the ability to kind of discern culture, discern the matters of heaven, discern the matters of God, and present that to the people in a way that would help them walk closer to God. So the question becomes, what they're really asking is, who blessed you? So Jesus goes, hey, uh, what's, your, what's your take on John the Baptist? Human or of like heaven? What's your, what's your take? Because if you really think about this, two rabbis have to actually bless. And the idea was that John the Baptist had this authority because he was out in the wilderness offering up a new interpretation about repenting and preparing to live a holy life as you get ready for the coming Messiah. Well, if you literally take this seriously, and I remember being in Israel one time and talking with a, with a Jewish rabbi. He doesn't even believe in Jesus. But I was asking him about Shmiha. And the authority, I'm like, where do you think Jesus got his shmiha? And he goes, if you actually understand this, you see Jesus going out to meet with John the Baptist. And his whole ministry begins at this baptism. And you have John the Baptist, someone who has authority, blessing this man. And then who else is speaking? You have heavens being torn open and a voice from above says, this is my son in whom I love, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And so this rabbi says, Jesus is the only one who's gotten his shmiha from one rabbi and from the voice of God. But the question really is that Luke is trying to set up in chapter 20 is, does he have authority in your life. Not just authority for heaven, not just authority over the past, but authority in the present. And this is the great, as C.S. Lewis calls, the great trilemma of humanity. Because we all have to wrestle, who is Jesus? Is he a liar? And he says that he is the son of God. Is he a liar when he says these things that are found in the gospels? Some would say he's not a liar. C.S. Lewis is some, some actually think he's a lunatic. Some say he's just crazy, like a wild man doing his own thing. He's either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or C.S. Lewis says, or he's Lord. And every single one of us has to wrestle this question to the ground. Who do you say Jesus is? And if he's a liar, then okay, there's no reason to actually apply him to your life. If he's a lunatic, no actual reason to apply his teachings to your actual life. But if he is Lord, and you think he has shmiha and authority, then you find yourself being invited in to do as he does and say as he says and live as he lives to be an apprentice or talmudim or disciple of the one true God.
And so Jesus has this moment where he's getting questioned by these religious leaders and then just pulls away. He knows that they're listening and he's got a group of people and Jesus does what he does best. He tells a story. And it's a story that kind of forms the entire Old Testament and where it was up into this moment and where it was going. Jesus understood where his life was going and he begins to try and help the people understand the story that God has been writing and is writing and will continue to write. It says this, verse 9. He went on to tell the parable to the people. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent another servant. But that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third and they wounded him and threw him out. So here's the story. You've got a very wealthy man who buys a vineyard. And he ends up hiring tenants. And these tenants was known in ancient Near East culture to basically take care of the land, harvest the crops. And then during harvest time, the owner would send kind of some servants to go get some of the crops or get some of the vine or grapes or wine or proceeds that were made. So this wealthy person who owns the, the vineyard sends some, a servant and that servant's beaten. Comes back and he's like, they didn't give me any money. He's like, what? Sends another servant. That servant is beaten and then just really shamefully taken advantage of. And then he sends a third one. And the third servant comes. And that one is even beaten. And the scriptures basically say he's like wounded and beaten to a pulp. And he comes back. And so when you read a parable and you hear this story, you got to be asking, Who, who's Jesus referencing in this story? What's, what's he trying to describe? And this is a story about how God created a world. And he entrusted us as the stewards in this story. In the land. In relationships. And how we walk closely with God. How we, how we love our neighbor. How we actually walk with those who are suffering. But in human kind of spirit, we end up often drifting, going our own way. And we end up just doing what we want to do, our own selfish human desires take over. And so God in his kindness, he sent some servants. And they were known as the prophets. And the prophets' jobs were to try and bring people back to understand how to walk in step and in harmony with the one true God. But oftentimes those, those prophets, what happened to them? They were rejected. They were mocked. They were ridiculed. They were shamed. And so God sent another prophet. And God sent another prophet. And so when you begin to see Luke 20, it starts off with a story about shmiha and authority. And then it moves to a story about servants being sent by God. Then it continues on because God's not done. It says this. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son whom I love. Again, there's baptism reference to that. This is my son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. 
This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. So Jesus is saying, um, guys, this is going to be my life. He's basically just painting this picture to the people who are listening. And he's saying, hey, what God ended up doing is sending prophet after prophet after prophet, servant after servant after servant. And then God looked at this broken and beautiful and fractured world that he owned, that he created, that he made. And he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send my son. Maybe, just maybe they'll listen to him. And Jesus came. And he saw the religious leaders. He saw in the ways in which the temple had become commercialized, how people had become judgmental, how religious leaders were performing, how they seemed to have it all together and were pretending. And Jesus started to speak to power. And he began to call out some stuff. He began to offer up new interpretations. And he began to speak with the authority from above. And when you actually speak to power, you often get killed. And what's amazing is in that story is if, a, if an owner had a son who was the heir to that land and that son was killed, then the tenants could actually claim that land as heirs. And they think to themselves, well, let's just kill this guy because I actually want control and I don't want to join and give back and actually participate with what this owner is all about. What's wild is when you start to read the scriptures in Luke 20, it talks about how the religious leaders were there. And they were trying to catch Jesus. And Jesus knows that they're listening. He knows that the religious leaders had missed the prophets. And, and he understands that the religious leaders are rejecting him. But when Jesus actually raises Lazarus from the dead, something happens. The chief priest of the day was a man by the name of Caiaphas. And Caiaphas' family, they, they had been in power as like this chief priest. It was kind of like this, this political position that they held. And they had to, they had to have Rome's backing. But they, they ended up having some profound levels of power. They had financial power and stability from Rome. And from the proceeds that were coming in from the temple. They had religious power because people respected them. And they had the nicest clothes and the robes. And they seemed like they had it all together. They had financial power, they had religious power, and they had political power. Nobody was going to mess with them because Rome had their back and Caesar had their back. But Jesus, Jesus ends up raising a guy from the dead. And all of a sudden, Caiaphas recognizes, man, I got financial power, I got religious power, I got political power. I don't have resurrection power. I can't bring anybody back from the dead. So the Gospel of John, Caiaphas says, you know what, guys? He calls all the chief priests together. He goes, you know what? It's actually better that one person dies and we still get to hold on to our positions than all of us die because he's literally upset Rome. And this whole plot begins to stew because there's a couple people who want to hold on to power instead of joining with what God is up to. 
So this is a story about shmiha. It's a story about authority. It's a story about servants being sent out and being rejected. It's a story about a God who sends his son and, he, and that son is rejected and that son is killed. So what is a God, an owner of this property called earth, supposed to do? Look what it says, verse 15. It says this, when the people heard this, or it says this, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Basically, we'll take those from those who are oppressing others. When the people heard this, they said, God forbid. God forbid. No, 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 this can't happen. And once again, this is a story of authority. It's a story of servants being sent out. It's a story of a son going to try and make things right and that son dying. And it's a story of a sentence being handed down for the people. But then it continues. And I love this. Jesus looked directly at them, at the people, and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. And Jesus, Jesus is, does something here so beautifully and brilliantly. He takes it back to this Old Testament symbolism. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, you know that there are these massive rock quarries and these mountains and what they'll end up doing is they'll end up cutting into these mountains. And these mountains are filled with what they call Jerusalem stone. And you've seen it. It's kind of like that, that white, like granite stone. It's beautiful. And what they would do is they would cut stones and actually begin to shape these stones at the rock quarry. And even scholars to this day have no idea how they would move these massive stones to a temple mount. In the Old Testament, we know that King Solomon's temple was somewhere between five and six acres. And King Herod's temple in the New Testament was 30 acres. He wanted to make it a little bit bigger. His name is Herod the Great. I think he struggles with narcissism. <laughs> and what's amazing about this story, though, is that the story went that one day the chief architect asked for the cornerstone. This would be the, the stone that you begin to build the entire temple structure off of. So they cut a stone, they bring it over, it's massive, they set it, and the chief architect says, it's not right. So what do they do? Some scholars say they actually pushed it off of the like, cornerstone plot, and they pushed it over, but it stayed on the Temple Mount. Some scholars say that they actually pushed it down the mountain, and it went down into the Kidron Valley. But what's amazing to see is this became kind of folklore, as Jesus kind of stepped in and began to recognize, oh yeah, you guys built this amazing structure, but you built it off of the wrong piece. God was building that which you rejected. And you all built it on something that's actually not sustainable and not actually about the heart's beat of heaven. And what's so incredible about this is Jesus is basically saying, you know what's amazing? As these religious leaders have all of this power and position. But they're rejecting God's heart. They're rejecting God's son. They're rejecting me. 
And I think for, for all of us here, when we begin to look at our own life, especially in this Lenten season, I think there's some stuff that we have to wrestle with. Because this whole Luke 20 story is about Shmiha. It's about God sending servants. God sending his son who ends up dying. About God granting a sentence saying, you know what? You rejected my son. You rejected me. This is what's going to happen. And Jesus then saying, what you've rejected, what you said was not good or not good enough, that's actually me. That's what actually came to rescue you and save you. As I think about this whole kind of message, and this, this passage isn't often taught in the, in the church. But when I think about this passage, I think I have to wrestle with the honest question. Does Jesus have shmiha in my life? Does he have authority in every part of my life? When it comes to my time, when it comes to my money, when it comes to my gifts, when it comes to my reputation. And I think honestly, I think many of us would say, oh yeah, yeah, totally. I'm, I'm all about following Jesus. I, I showed up here. I made it here. I love coming to service. I love singing songs. I love it. But then all of a sudden, as you start to flip through this book, the invitation that Jesus offers is, well, do I have authority over your bitterness? Do I have authority over the people that you can't stand? And if I have authority over that, do you actually have the ability to begin to forgive? Do, do I actually have authority over time? And it's crazy when Chick-fil-A is better at time than we are. I mean, they, they, they actually practice Sabbath better than I do. And every time I want Chick-fil-A, it's always on a Sunday. And they're always closed. And, and there's this, this amazing thing where they're literally saying, I want to take this book seriously. And again, I think it's easy for us to say, man, I love you, Jesus. And I want to be your apprentice. I want to be your disciple. I want you to actually save me, rescue me, redeem me. But man, I don't want to give you authority over the things that you ask me to do that I don't want to do. What keeps me up at night is not what this book tells me not to do. What keeps me up at night is what this book invites me to do. To love people. Forgive people. To confess my sins. And see, this, this, is, this is where all that rubber meets the road kind of stuff. Because I think deep down we want to be disciples. We want, we want as one, one amazing scholar says, we want, the, we want Jesus, we just don't want the, the part of the cross. We want to follow Jesus and we want heaven, we just don't want to have to die and surrender doing it. And there's this amazing passage in verse 18. Can we put 18 back up on the screen? And when you see verse 18, it's unbelievable because it says everyone who falls on that stone, and it's the rejected stone, will be broken to pieces, but anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And I read this passage a long time ago and didn't know what it meant, so I just moved on. And as I was prepping for this, I'm like, man, I, I've never understood what this verse meant. What's Jesus saying? Because again, he's talking about the cornerstone that was rejected. God was actually building and he was the picture of the rejection. He's saying this, something that's so important. 
is that literally when you come to follow after Jesus and you say he's Lord and you are a Talmudim, a disciple, and you literally believe that he is Shmiha, authority over every part of your life, what that requires is a broken spirit. It requires a level and posture of surrender. The founders of the Salvation Army have this great line that literally says, the greatness of a man's or woman's power is their measure of surrender. The greatness of a man or woman's power is directly correlated to their measure of surrender. See, see what often happens in our culture, y'all don't have basements here in Houston, you just have humidity, but like, you know, in the Midwest, we have basements. And the reason we have basements is so that when you come over to our house, we know where we can place all of the stuff that we don't want you to see <laughs> into the basement. You all probably have an office or a pantry or a laundry room or somewhere else where you do that, right? And, and you'll be showing someone your house. You're like, yeah, we're not going to go in there. We're just going to V-line to the great room or the living room or the kitchen, sit at the nice new island because you just opened up your home and cut down some walls. But where there's places that we hide stuff. And this, this is what Jesus is, is, is literally inviting us to give him authority over the places that we just... Don't want to surrender. That's why AA or Celebrate Recovery is so powerful. Because people step up and say, hi, I'm Steve and I'm an addict. Hi, I, I struggle with this. One of the holiest things that we can do is begin to confess where we actually are in our life. Where our marriage actually is where we actually are with addiction, where we actually are with lust, where we actually are with finances, where we actually are. And many of us, we just have these internal Caiaphases and religious leader stuff in us because we don't want to confess because we don't want you to th think anything different about me or about you. So we pretend. We put stuff in the basement or the great room and we just work at image management and never let you or Jesus get close to that. And what Jesus is saying is by not actually surrendering, you know what ends up happening? That thing crushes you. Because your headspace and heart space is all focused on not letting that secret or that reality get out and your attention is there rather than to what God actually wants to do in you and through you. And the beauty of the cross, the beauty of grace, the beauty of when you literally have the courage to wave a white flag and say, I surrender. I surrender my life. I surrender this part that is broken and fractured in my story. I raise a white flag because I can't do it. In Carrie Underwood theology, Jesus take the wheel. I love what Dallas Willard says. You want to know where God lives? You want to know his address? You want to actually know where God lives? Dallas says it's at the end of your rope. 
Because you've chased and you've looked and you searched and you ran after everything else that you thought would preserve or protect or give you a level of authority. But until you come to the moment where you're like, I got nowhere else to go. God, you got to rescue my marriage. You got to rescue and help me through my addiction. You got to rescue me with this bitterness. You got to rescue me with this anger. You got to rescue me through this grief. You got to rescue me. Until you get to that moment, we'll play church. And we'll pretend. And we'll please. And little by little, we'll reject what Jesus wants to do in us. And this is, this, is, this is the real stuff where we as apprentices and disciples of Jesus who actually saying, you're not a liar, you're not a lunatic, but you are Lord. I'm going to give you full access to me. So here's my white flag. Here's my white flag. And that... That is the work. That is the Lenten season. That is the desert experience. That is the invitation. When you come, you break yourself open. All of heaven sends grace and beauty and love and truth and begins to put you back together. But if you hold and resist and resist, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a problem. I got it under control. I'm managing my debt. I'm managing my addiction. I'm managing your understanding and view of me. I'm managing all of that. Well, God in his infinite goodness and glory and his kindness will find a way to lead you to repentance. And what's so amazing is just like the religious leaders and the people missed out on the invitation from the prophets, and just like the religious leaders and the people missed out on the invitation for Jesus, the question is right before me, right before us, will we miss out on it too? And I know you were saying, I came to church, I'm here, I know. But a whole bunch of religious leaders showed up to church too. And they missed it. And it's easy for us to say, man, I wouldn't have missed Jesus if, if I was there. I, would, I wouldn't have missed what God was wanting to do. In the, I wouldn't have missed. Well, maybe. Maybe. And this is why most pastors just move past Luke 20. Because this is the wrestling question that we have to like get after. Does he have authority over every part of my life? Or just a certain amount? And this is what Rich Mullins says. Well, that's why we like highlighters. Because we will just highlight certain passages. Remember in the 70s when you had to buy the whole album? The vinyl? Remember that? You couldn't just walk into the, the store and be like, um, actually, I want song six and song four. Apple messed it a whole thing up. <laughs> right? And this is, this is literally what we have right now. We have iPod theology. We just created playlists. Which song is actually going to help me be the best version of me? Which literally is us saying that I don't have to do anything that's going to actually hurt. You know what the best thing for you is? Surrender. And the greatness of a man or a woman's power is their measure of surrender. And when AA began and Celebrate Recovery began, the first three steps were simply this. Based in scripture, based in being a disciple of Jesus, it was simply this. I can't. Step one. Step two, Christ can. Step three, I think I'll let him. And is there anything in your life right now where you're like, I just can't. 
I can't in my own strength forgive her. I can't in my own strength get past this lust. I can't in my own strength get myself out of debt. I can't in my own strength fix our marriage. I can't in my own strength get through this struggle of depression. I can't in my own strength get through blank. And it's in this moment where you say, I can't. Christ, only you can. And the holiest work then is step three saying, I think I'll let you. Why flag? Surrender. You already got my eternity. You already got my faith and future. I just know you care about this part that I've stuffed in the basement or in the pantry or in the living room, whatever that room is that you hide. I just need help here. And that's where he wants to be invited into. So what I just wanted to do is just make some space because I believe that none of us are perfect. None of us have arrived. We are all in process. And God's not asking you to jump from point A to perfect. That's not going to happen until you get to heaven. But what's the next best right step? What's that one area in your story that you're like, it's time to be honest and human about it. It's time to be real about it. This is just taking up too much precious real estate in my head and my heart. Today's the day. And so I'm just going to give you a moment just to, I'm not going to make you stand or come up here and take the mic and confess. I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm going to do that, but I want you to understand something. You talk to any police officer, you talk to any counselor, you talk to any lawyer, you talk to any judge, you talk to any pastor. What they will tell you about com- confession is that people often only confess to what they already believe you to know to be true. But true confession is when you just go even farther. I just want to give you a moment to confess before God. Area in your life that you're just confessing, going, I can't anymore. Jesus, take the wheel. I can't. I know you can. And here, I want to let you. So, here's the question just for you to ponder. Where in your life do you need to raise a white flag? Where in your life do you need to choose the practice of surrender? Where in your life do you need to say, I can't, but Christ can. I think I'll let him. Just take a few seconds just to offer that up to God. And then I'll close us in prayer and we'll move to a time of receiving communion. God, you say that when we give an offering from the heart, it is the aroma that is pleasing to heaven. And the confessions that just were lifted up, the things that you already know, 
but we're just inviting you more into. God, I pray that my friends here would sense your nearness, that they would hear your voice, give them a tangible next step. Maybe it's to ask for help. Maybe it's to admit a struggle. Maybe it's to make a significant change. But God, I pray that we would not reject you, but we would build our life on you and your goodness. We pray all this your name and everyone said, amen, amen, amen.